Hey, everybody, before we get started, we have a live show to announce. We will be at the National Gallery of Art Washington for their NGA Nights programming. We'll be doing a live show there on September 12th. The program itself is running from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. We're actually going to do our show twice that night. Uh, You do have to register for it, but the good news is registration is completely free. It's just a matter of signing up. Yep, you can come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, and you can click on the page where it says live shows, or you can go to mistinhistory.com slash shows. You will find a link for where you can register for tickets ahead of time. Again, this is a whole night of programming, and we plan to do the same show two times so that more folks have the chance to see it. So we hope to see you in Washington, D.C. on September 12th. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Uh, so today we are talking about uh, a court case that was fairly famous in the 1860s. Less known today, it is the um, the great English convent case. The greatness that is referred to is definitely not in the sense of good. It's not really a very delightful case to hear about, uh, but it speaks to the fervor of public interest surrounding it. Um, it became really a sensational legal and cultural moment for Victorian England. And it was scandalous because it involved conflict within a convent. And the idea of hearing what went on behind the walls of such a place tucked away from the outside world was completely tantalizing to both the press and the public. And also, that was because it came at a time when it fed an already growing anti-Catholic movement in England. Uh, Additionally, it played on the shock of women being incredibly cruel to one another. And that was something that was even used by the plaintiff's legal team when speaking to the jury when this case went to trial. So there was an inherently salacious element to the proceedings as people eagerly waited for the juicier details of the case to emerge. One thing that we'll mention going in is that uh, if you look up any documents on this, the names involved get spelled all manner of different ways. <laughs> uh, the plaintiff is, in most of the legal documents, just referred to as Miss Sarin, but she her name was either Susan or Suzanne, depending on what you look at. Uh, similarly, the primary defendant, Mrs. Starr, is also spelled star with two R, star with one R. There is also a Mrs. Kennedy involved, sometimes spelled with one N, sometimes with two. And I want to be clear that in the same legal document, these names will change spellings. <laughs> so uh, there's a lot of inconsistency about that. We're kind of going with the most commonly used ones. And we'll talk also about uh, using their non-religious names versus their names as nuns a little bit. We, we're going with the non-religious names just for clarity. Heads up also, Uh, There's a lot of discussion and accusations of abuse and cruelty in the mix here. If those are sensitive things for you, uh, this might not be the episode for you. Yeah, as I was reading it, I was reminded of, like, mean girls, but worse. Yeah, it's like a lot of fairly petty abuses, but they really accumulate in a way that is pretty upsetting and you could understand would be very trying. Yeah. So Susan Soren was from a very devout Irish Roman Catholic family. She was the third daughter in her immediate family, although her parents didn't really want her to become a nun. Her, their other two daughters, her sisters, already were, but she really felt called to this. She finally convinced her family that it was the only life for her and then visited a number of convents to try to find the right fit. 
1851, she became a candidate in a Dublin, Ireland, Sisters of Mercy convent. And then she went from candidate to novice on August 5th, 1851, taking the name Sister Mary Scholastica Joseph and taking her vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, as well as service to the poor, the sick, and the ignorant. And during the time that Saren joined the convent, so did two other women, not at the exact same time, but all within a few months of one another. Uh, That's Mrs. Starr, whose religious name was Sister Mary Joseph, and Mrs. Kennedy, whose religious name was Sister Mary Magdalene. Both of those women had been married before they joined the convent. That is why they are misses. Uh, For the purposes of simplicity, we are going to stick to using legal names rather than their religious names, as that is what's primarily used in all of the accounts of the court case, which is really what we're focusing on today. So by Saren's own account, these three sisters were very close. She would later testify, quote, "'We were all three thrown very much into each other's society.'" I became very intimate with Mrs. Starr and attached to her and she to me. We were associated in the work of education. I was equally attached to Mrs. Kennedy. And I should point out, too, that even in different publications of these accounts, this was part of her testimony at trial. Some of that phrasing will shift a little bit because basically the court stenographers were taking shorthand and then uh, writing things out longhand afterwards. And so... Sometimes the sentence structure is a little different. If you ever see another version of this, uh, anything that we're quoting today, you might see slight variations in how a a sentence is worded. Just FYI. Uh, And after a time, Mrs. Starr was appointed Mother Superior of a a convent in Yorkshire, England. And at that time, this is sometime around 1855 or 1856, Mrs. Starr asked Saren to join her at this new convent, which Susan Saren and her family agreed to, with the understanding that if she was unhappy there in England, she could return to her old convent in Dublin. So initially, things seemed to go well. But then in 1865, Miss Saren was expelled from her community and absolved of all of her vows, and this was against her will. Four years later, in February 1869, Miss Susan Saren filed suit against the Mother Superior of Sisters of Mercy, Mrs. Starr, and her assistant, Mrs. Kennedy, who was the convent's sister in authority. You'll see her listed as sister in authority or superior assistant. Sometimes it's, it, the wording comes out different. Uh, Soren accused Starr of abuse and of conspiring with her colleagues to force Miss Saren to leave the convent. She also accused them of falsifying evidence, which was presented to a church bishop with the intent to have her expelled from the order. And to address damages to reputation and character, because uh, after she was expelled from this life, she wasn't really prepared for another vocation, uh, and she was shamed. She felt like she couldn't go into a lot of churches. Uh, so Miss Saren was suing for 5,000 pounds. Proceedings began on February 3rd, 1869, Solicitor General John Duke Coleridge was the head of the plaintiff's legal team, assisted by Mr. Digby Seymour and a Mr. Wills. Henry Hawkins, George Mellish, and Charles Russell made up the defense's team of solicitors. The case was presided over by the Lord Chief Justice Sir Alexander Cockburn. And the charges, as outlined before the court on February 3rd, 1869, were noted by the court stenographer as follows. Quote, This was an action brought by a professed sister of the Order of Mercy against the Mother Superior and a professed sister of the same order in the convent at Hull to recover damages for assault and conspiracy to drive her from the convent and have her expelled from the order. The declaration stated that the defendants, on diverse occasions, assaulted and beat the plaintiff, and they took her clothes and property from her and imprisoned her for a long time, whereby she was rendered sick and ill and greatly distressed in body and mind. 
The case, as it was laid before the court that day, went on to include a trover. That's a legal action to recover the value of property that was discarded by another person. This was going to cover a watch, some clothing, books, and papers. The accusation on the part of the plaintiff went on to state that Ms. Sarin was legally entitled to the basic necessities of life, including food, clothing, and shelter, as well as the right to attend services in the Roman Catholic Church as a member of the order, and that the defendants had deprived her of these rights. Soren also charged Starr with libel, saying that the mother superior told Dr. Robert Cornthwaite, the Bishop of Beverly, that Soren had complained about her boots, clothing, and food, was late in her work, ate during hours where doing so was prohibited, spoke privately with a priest, was contradictory and disobedient, and had illicit conversations with outsiders. The defendants in this case actually paid the trover for the lost items at the outset, but then pled not guilty to all other charges. When Coleridge stepped up to make his opening statements, he said to the jury, quote, You will have gathered from the opening of the pleadings by my learned friend, Mr. Wills, that the case which I have to bring to your attention is one a good deal out of the common way and requiring more than a common amount of your watchfulness and patience. The facts of it are strange and painful. They are strange and painful as a revelation of human nature, They are more strange and painful as a revelation of female nature. They are most strange and painful of all as a revelation of conventional female nature, showing what women are capable of when they shut themselves up from their kind and do violence to the instincts of their nature and what mean and petty cruelty they can wreak upon sister women in the name of the God of love. And in an effort to perhaps temper the possibility of being called into question as attacking the Catholic Church, Coleridge made a point to mention repeatedly that both parties were of the same denomination. However, of course, he was vilifying convents (laughs) and and thus the Catholic Church in the process. And women also. (laughs) Oh, women for sure. Uh, I mean, that's a big part of his case is that, like, if you lock women up together— They'll just become animals. It's really quite terrible. Uh, He did also urge the jury to not let their bias regarding Catholics enter into their assessment of the matters at hand. This case stretched on for three weeks, and throughout it, the public just leaned in to hear more. The courtroom was full every single day of testimony with both general public in attendance as well as a significant number of clergy. The case was so highly publicized and was seen as unprecedented, which also drew lawyers not involved in the proceedings to attend as spectators. And coming up, we will dig into the story of how uh, Miss Sarin's time in the convent really devolved uh, and how that was relayed in the courtroom. But first, let's take a quick sponsor break. There was a sketch made for Vanity Fair at the time of the trial of Mrs. Starr, the Mother Superior, by the artist Carlo Pellegrini. I would actually love to do an episode on him at some point. He signed his work Ape. That was his his uh, sketch name. And it looks almost like it could be the work of previous podcast subject Charles Adams, as it is rather cartoonish and the style feels very similar. In it, Star looks both pious and guilty at the same time. Her hands are clasped on the ledge in front of her, but she is looking to the side with an expression that characterizes her as really sort of sinister or sneaky. The plaintiff's lawyers relayed the early history of Sarin's time as a nun, 
and that she had a years-long relationship with Starr without any apparent trouble. Things just changed abruptly in 1861. At the time, Starr started questioning Saren about what she had discussed with her priest during confession. It doesn't seem unreasonable to me that she wouldn't want to talk about that. And she took this line of questioning as an insult, and she refused to answer. In her testimony, Saren stated, quote, I thought it would be a breach of honor and contrary to every regulation. And she continued to refuse to share this information despite being asked repeatedly about it. And from that point, things really turned unpleasant very quickly. Yeah, we'll talk about it in a little while that uh, Mrs. Starr never is very clear in her testimony that she wasn't saying that she thought anything untoward was happening between the two of them, but she just felt uneasy about it. And that's actually the caption of the the that sketch we just talked about, was that she, it's something along the lines of she had an uneasy feeling. And she alleged that she asked all of the other sisters about their confessions and that they always shared them with her, which becomes a strange whole other thing. She was apparently a very controlling woman. The case against Mrs. Starr and her colleague and how they punished Miss Sarin quickly assembled into a picture of great cruelty. And I, I do want to point out, you know, we talk a lot, we will continue to talk a lot as well in this episode about the bias against the Catholic Church during this time. Uh, the plaintiff's legal team was very clearly playing on this, so much so that there were even times when the the magistrate would break in and be like, I think you're over-dramatizing this or mischaracterizing this. Um, so they really are trying to, like, paint these two women as just super villains. But over the course of Saren's life with Star as her mother's superior, after this, this incident began where she would not tell her her confession, uh, the plaintiff claimed that she was treated far more cruelly than any of the other sisters in the convent. She was given more and more difficult chores than others. This was on top of the fact that it is already mentioned in a lot of letters establishing... Uh, before any of this happened, that she was not a physically strong person to begin with. Uh, and then the punishments her, for her various infractions, as determined by Mrs. Starr, basically she would say, you are a liar. There was no recourse or, like, way to to discuss or disprove that. Uh, so her punishments that she got for any of these were incredibly harsh. So some of the things that, that Ms. Sarin reported... Her portions were reduced as a punishment when the mother superior accused her of sneaking or stealing food. The food she was fed tasted off and might have been rancid. She was given foods that she was known to dislike, particularly mutton, every single day. When it was determined that she wasn't cleaning to the standards of the mother superior, she was made to pin a dirty duster onto her head and wear it at meals and during time in the community room. That's one of the things that the magistrate and the uh, solicitor general have a big back and forth about was like, was this a dirty duster? Had it been used on something wet? Was it extra disgusting? Uh, and they have a big discussion about it in the court proceedings, if you ever want to go read them. It's basically two men bickering over just how dirty a duster was. The boots that were given to Miss Sarin for her use, had holes in them. And if she complained about this, she was deemed to be disobedient, according to her testimony. Her room was watched at all hours, uh, and a thread was placed on the doorknob so that she couldn't leave without detection. This is also written up in a couple of different ways. One was that, like, there was essentially a thing on her doorknob that she couldn't turn the doorknob without it falling. There is another that suggests later on, when things really go quite poorly, that there was actually a, a string tied from her doorknob to the bedpost of another sister so that if she 
opened the door, that person would get up and know that they needed to follow her around. Mrs. Starr would simultaneously write to the bishop that something had to be done to get this insolent and problematic Miss Sarin out of the convent, while also writing letters at the same time to her family saying that she could not leave. Yeah, and that's well documented. That's not like just an accusation. Those letters existed and were brought up during the case that she was writing (laughs) over and over, like, we have to do something to get rid of this woman. In the meantime, her parents were writing and saying, can we please have her back in Dublin? And her going, oh, there's no way she could possibly go back. Similarly, Mrs. Starr used her influence to smear Miss Sarin's reputation within the church to other convents that she might have moved to and effectively ensured that way that she was not approved for transfer there. And then she would use those failures of those appointments that didn't come through as evidence against her character. In the four years between 1861 and 1865, all of this conflict played out and more with Sarin never living up to Starr's expectations and always being punished. During that time, Susan Sarin's mother tried to advocate on her daughter's behalf. She wrote to church officials that the archbishop in Dublin had approved a return to her old convent, but Mrs. Starr refused, saying that once she moved to England, Miss Sarin was no longer under the jurisdiction of Dublin church officials. Even when word of Sarin's father being gravely ill was sent on to the convent, Mrs. Starr did not relay that information to his daughter. Yeah, again, that's all stuff that is substantiated in kind of the letter record that was brought up during the case. And at one point, Miss Sarin wrote to her uncle, who was also a priest, uh, and she mentioned to him that Mother Superior had said that she was frustrated with her mother's letters and that there had also been some miscommunication or confusion about some of her behavior at the convent. And Susan Sarin framed all of this in a fairly positive way. She kind of sets it up like, I know the Mother Superior doesn't mean to make these mistakes kind of thing. Uh, She suggests that she's not unhappy at all as a nun, but she was just really unsettled there at her current convent and that she would like to move and that she was sure that things would right themselves if she could. That letter never made it out of the convent, though. Starr kept it from being sent and wrote her own letter to Sarin's uncle, who was the Reverend T. Matthews. She urged him to find another appointment for Miss Sarin and told him that she had committed, quote, the most grave offenses, stating, quote, I fear we shall be obliged to seek to have her released from the obligation of her vows, which are no longer to her an occasion of merit, but an occasion of sin. And the Reverend Matthews wrote back that he knew he couldn't prejudge the situation, but that this all seemed really, really odd to him, since his niece had been such an exemplary nun throughout her time since she took her vows, and so much so that Mother Superior had, in fact, asked her to move to England along with herself. And he suggested that if they would just wait until after the busy season, like once Easter was passed, then they could talk about doing something, and then he would have time to travel to England and investigate the matter himself. And the mother superior, Mrs. Starr, wrote that Miss Sarin had to be removed before Easter. In the meantime, Susan Sarin's mother and brother had visited the convent and were admitted only after having been turned away first. They had a brief visit in which Miss Sarin assured them that everything was well, although she was weeping and she was clearly in distress. Not long after that visit, Sarin wrote to the bishop and got a reply. Those two letters weren't available at the time of the trial, though. This communication incensed Mrs. Starr, and she made Miss Sarin confess publicly, including a written statement that she had written to her uncle without permission. 
She couldn't make her confess to having communicated with the bishop because that was her right as a nun. Yeah, that was what really made her angry. It was kind of like, you went over my head, uh, that she made her confess to other uh, letter writing that, that was not apparently okay without permission. And on August 4th, 1862, Mrs. Starr wrote a letter to the bishop herself to convey her chagrin, writing with emphasis that, quote, such intercourse with externs for such purpose is a violation of a most essential point of religious life. So what she was saying was that she felt that since Sarin had communicated with her uncle with the intent that he would help her move to a different convent, that she had sinned gravely, and that she should, quote, be released from her vows and be dismissed from the community. From that summer on, Starr started a whole new series of punishments. The mother superior told Sarin she could only write home once a year. The letters she received, including those from her father, who continued to be unwell, were heavily censored and then destroyed after she read them once with a witness present. She wasn't allowed any communication with her two sisters or her brother, who were also clergy. Uh, yeah, the the reason that that Mrs. Starr gave for all of that censorship was that she felt that in some of the letters, the family had either exaggerated or lied and that she thought that was sinful, so she had struck it out so that uh, Saren, who was already, in her view, a mess, could not read more sinful things. Um, And that was also why they destroyed the letters. Uh, It's a bit much. Um, And as all of this was escalating at the convent, the Bishop Robert Cornthwaite had been in contact with Miss Soren's uncle, who, as you recall, was also a priest. And so the bishop arranged to visit the convent and investigate everything as quickly as he could. And he arrived in November of 1862. Uh, He was already, like, in the habit of making periodic visits to all convents, so it was not odd for him to have shown up there. It wasn't only for this purpose, but... He was there in November. He reassured Miss Sarin after investigating that he thought she had done nothing wrong and that he would see that she would be treated more kindly and that she could come directly to him with any complaints and not complain to anyone else within the hierarchy. But after he left, matters continued exactly as they had before, except they actually got worse. Starr created a whole new list of rules that Sarin had to live by. She wasn't allowed to speak with anyone outside the convent, If a visitor came and addressed a question to her, she was required to motion them to someone else. She had to submit a written record of her faults every month, and her workload was increased. When her brother died rather suddenly, they kept the news from her for months. She was told long after the fact and then was forbidden from taking any time to grieve. And all of this seemed to really take a toll significantly on Miss Soren's mental state. And in a lengthy letter that she wrote to Mrs. Starr during a retreat, her writing takes on a a very unsettling tone, and it really starts to exhibit the language of someone who has been systematically abused and has come to believe that what their abuser is telling them is, in fact, the truth. There is one particular passage in which she describes what to most ears would sound like an exceedingly minor transgression of folding up a letter that she had been writing before a senior sister had instructed her to do so. And then after talking about this, she writes this rather heartbreaking to me line of, I am always, I believe, to be doing things wrong. And then she also goes on in that same letter, which is quite lengthy, to describe a recent confession in which she was troubled that the priest didn't seem to understand how sinful she was. And she wrote, quote, I really tried to make him think me as bad as I did myself. 
Saren's brother, who was a priest, visited, and this visit left him unsettled. After being allowed less than 15 minutes with his sister and seeing her looking and behaving unlike herself, he wrote to the bishop, who questioned Mrs. Starr on the matter. She replied that, quote, the presence of Sister Scholastica amongst us is a very heavy cross. She is an enemy living in our midst. And we're going to continue to talk about the last months of Miss Saren's time at the convent in just a minute. But first, we'll take a break from all of this rather sad and disturbing uh, tale and have a, uh, a moment of thanks for one of the sponsors that keeps this show going. In April of 1865, Mrs. Starr began a campaign with the bishop regarding the, quote, problem of Miss Saren. She asked the bishop to appoint an investigative committee with the intent that Saren would ultimately be dismissed. And over the course of numerous letters, the Mother Superior made Miss Saren out to be a sort of poison on the convent, ruining virtually everything about their otherwise harmonious life and making everyone anxious. This is according to Mother Superior. And she threatened to resign, writing, quote, I do not possess the virtue and talent to govern in trying circumstances. It is a fault of character in me, which time has rather increased rather than lessened, that I take things too much to heart and am too solicitous about those who are under my care. The bishop replied on April 30th, 1865, that it was not possible for him to accept Mrs. Starr's resignation. He encouraged her to have faith in God, he stated that if it truly was a case where the mother superior or the sister must go, that the sister should be the one to leave. He had never seen the problem with Sister Scholastica, but he couldn't let one of his convents go without a leader. And Starr's follow-up letter after he says, no, no, you can't quit, uh, kind of brings up the same idea, that she, Mother Superior, will leave and that Miss Saren doesn't even need to know that she was the cause. And that all sounds sort of benevolent, but... Then the language quickly shifts to outlining the many alleged sins that the younger nun has committed, many of them really, really minor infractions. But then in particular, she starts accusing Miss Saren of theft. And while no one has ever caught her, because apparently she was so sly, several different people did suspect her, which Mrs. Starr sort of holds up in the letter as nearly as good as real evidence. This is where I beg you to keep in mind that Mrs. Starr, as Mother Superior, was very influential, so it seemed like most of the other nuns went along with whatever she said in such matters. Starr even accused Saren of stealing food from the children who came to the convent for school, that she was stealing their dinners, although none of the children or their parents ever reported such a thing. There's no record of any kind of complaint along those lines. In order to investigate this possibility of theft, Saren was forced to undress in front of Star and her assistants in order to see if she was concealing stolen food or other items. This was done twice, once in May of 1863 and another time in December of 1865. In each case, there was no evidence of any misappropriated goods or food, but the experiences were humiliating. And this this was not something she alleged. Like, this was acknowledged. Yes, this absolutely happened uh, and was defended as, a, as the only way they were ever going to know for certain if she was a thief. And they, uh, the, the plaintiff's legal team makes the case that if they had found even a crumb, if they had been able to find essentially a molecule of a thing, they would have reported it because that would have been their evidence, but they never found 
anything. Uh, The bishop finally acquiesced after all of this discussion to Starr's request, and a committee was assembled to review the case, and ultimately Ms. Sarin was expelled from the community. The evidence in the matter was given to the bishop, but Ms. Sarin and her uncle, who represented her before the committee, were not given access to any of it, and it was unclear even what the many crimes that she was accused of were. They did not have a list of what she was being accused of to work from or defend against. It was really, in the words of her uncle, I think he called it something like a travesty. Uh, And when the court case went to trial, no copy of that evidence that allegedly went before the committee could be obtained. And the offenses that were allegedly addressed in that missing evidence didn't even have anything to do with the alleged theft, which had actually been the issue that finally drove the bishop to action. According to the Solicitor General, who was representing Starr in her legal battle, these were the same sorts of petty charges that Starr had been trotting out for some time. That Sarin had been disobedient, that she had written letters without permission, that she had eaten buttered toast, and that she had been eating cake During the trial, those last two were met with some laughter in the courtroom. Four-fifths of the bishop's committee had to vote in favor of the nun's innocence per the terms of the church's committee assignment. That didn't happen, though, and she was expelled. Miss Sarin was unwilling to leave the convent, though. While she had been unhappy with her treatment there, she did not want to leave what she believed was her calling. And to drive her out, Mrs. Starr confined her to her room. Her fire was taken away. This was in winter. She could not have soap or water. She was only given leftover food from the plates of other sisters after meals were concluded. And when she refused to change from her religious garments to regular clothes, she was eventually stripped of her habit while she slept, so she had no choice but to change into the provided civilian wear. And finally, uh, after this dragging on for some time, Susan Sarin had had enough. She became quite ill, and her spirit was broken, and so she wrote to her brother, who immediately came to take her away from the convent. During the testimony, Sarin's uncle, Father Matthews, testified that while things had started out fine at the convent in England, over the years that Sarin was there, he went from being welcomed and well-received to being kept away from her or only allowed to see her in very brief visits. He also described his niece slowly changing and felt that things were not right with her. And when the bishop was on the stand, he recalled that after his visit in which he reassured Miss Sarin that Mrs. Starr had cried when he left because she was unhappy with what he had said to her. He said, quote, I did not like to tell them, Mrs. Starr and Mrs. Kennedy, my feelings, and I left them very dissatisfied, and certainly Mrs. Starr cried. The Solicitor General also pointed out that Starr contradicted herself in her testimony. For example, she mentioned that after the bishop's visit, she wrote, quote, the issue of the visitation gave her and her supporters an immense triumph over us, of which they show their full appreciation whenever they have an opportunity. But then under questioning, it turned out that she couldn't come up with any such supporters. She'd initially said that she meant Sarin's family, but they hadn't been allowed to visit often, if at all. And even when they did see Miss Sarin, it was briefly. They usually didn't see the Mother Superior. Yeah, he was basically like, when exactly did anybody lord this over you? Because these people weren't even around when you said they were. Uh, And there were a lot of instances like that where her sort of double dealings where she was writing simultaneous letters saying very different things were coming up. And uh, she she did not do particularly spectacularly under questioning. There were a lot of I don't knows in the mix. Uh, Mrs. Starr was actually found also to have destroyed 
some of the papers that were germane to this court case. She said that she did so because she had felt that the matters in them were settled, but some of them were destroyed after Ms. Sarin began legal action, which, of course, is not something you're supposed to do. Uh, Mr. Coleridge, the Solicitor General, noted that while both Mrs. Starr and Mrs. Kennedy were quick to say that one of Ms. Sarin's sins was pointing out the flaws of others, that they were both awfully quick to belt out a litany of the transgressions that they felt that she had committed— through the witnesses that they called, the defense tried to build a case against Miss Soren's character. They claimed that she liked possessions and things like clothes. They also said that she liked to walk around the convent at night, which was both odd behavior and something they didn't want her to do. She wasn't enthusiastic about teaching children, and she was said to sneak food outside of allowed mealtimes. Her writing to family members using language such as my dearest uncle was considered excessive and overly affectionate, In short, she was not, per the defense, upholding her vows. And of course, there was also this hope for some of the spectators that as the defense started to characterize Sarin as a a very poor nun, that there might be something truly salacious revealed in the midst of all of the testimony. And at one point, it did come up that Miss Sarin became, quote, excited when a certain priest would visit the convent. This, of course, immediately got people thinking there was some sort of sexual relationship. That idea was pretty quickly dismissed, even by Mrs. Starr. Uh, But still, the rumor mill kind of ran with that one. It's clear from some of the response to things that came up in this trial that there was a degree of humor that the Solicitor General and some of the assembled crowd found in the rules of the convent. And to counter that, a big part of the defense's case was trying to convey that while some of the rules of religious life seemed petty or silly to outsiders, they were a vital part of a larger devotion. So being obedient to the Mother Superior, they argued, was part of the vows that Saren had taken and a life she had agreed to freely. On February 24th, the Solicitor General made his closing speech. In it, he stated how big this case really was to the welfare of Miss Sarin, saying, quote, It is my duty to tell you now that this is in truth and fact an issue of her social life and death. It is a question whether she is to be permitted to continue the life to which she has devoted herself, to which she is intimately wedded and passionately attached, or whether she is to be flung back upon the world which she believed she had left forever and for which she is now entirely unsuited with a stain upon her character which no lapse of time can ever avail to efface. He also took the opportunity to point out that the convents of England were, in his view, operating under such a veil of secrecy that it allowed these kinds of abuses to happen. He pointed out how, in this particular case, all the cruelty brought to bear by Mrs. Starr seemed really against what he knew of Christianity. Yeah, he definitely uses that tactic of going, look, I'm not a clergy member. I wouldn't claim to be an expert on religion, but what I know of Christianity, this doesn't seem to fall in line with. Yeah, there's a difference between being strict and bullying someone. (laughs) Yes, Um, The jury reached its verdict on February 26, 1869, after deliberating for less than an hour. And while a number of papers actually reported that things seemed to be stacked in favor of the defendants, the jury found in favor of the plaintiff on the counts of libel and conspiracy. Uh, Sarin was not, however, awarded the 5,000 pounds that she had sought. She was awarded 500. This wasn't the end of it, though. Starr and her staff appealed the jury's decision, 
But this second wave of legal action didn't get all the attention that the first one had. It faded from the public eye as other cases rose up and came into focus, and it never made it to trial. In April of 1870, the matter was settled out of court. And this trial, and particularly Mrs. Starr's testimony in it, really only fanned the flames of suspicion against the Catholic Church and a general anti-Catholic sentiment in England. Uh, That was, of course, in place long before Ms. Sarin brought her case to the court. Even before the trial began, like leading up to it, newspapers were running editorials suggesting that girls and young women who might be considering entering a convent should consider such a move very carefully given the possible situations that the Sarin versus Star case illuminated. Yeah, you and I had a conversation before we came into the studio about how uh, Star's response to a lot of these allegations was sort of like, yeah, that's how we do it in a convent. Not that there's a problem or a bad way to behave. Yeah, I mean, she really didn't deny most of the charges. In some cases, she tried to say, no, no, that's framed for maximum dramatic effect and to make us look bad. Yes, we took her food away, but you have to understand that was a punishment that we felt fit the crime of of complaining about her food or their belief, even though they never found evidence, that she was stealing food. So it's a little bit weird. Like we said, there was no, not really a lot of, oh, that didn't happen. More a matter of, well, it didn't happen quite like that, and if it did, it, it wasn't that bad. That's how we do it. In a preface written by James Grant Esquire to accompany the publication of the trial account shortly after it was concluded, he wrote, quote, The whole country has been astounded by the evidence which has been brought forward in the course of this remarkable trial of the real character of Roman Catholicism. The outer world now see popery with a clearness of vision with which they never saw it before. And the sight will not, I feel assured, render it more attractive in the eyes of those whose mental perceptions are not obscured. They must, on the contrary, be appalled as well as amazed by the hideousness of the features which popery presents as exhibited within the last few weeks in Westminster Hall. Yeah, he also was uh, trying to make a case that there should be some sort of oversight put in place where convents were regularly inspected and toured by people outside the church. Uh, I mean, he makes very clear in that preface that he is anti-popery, so know that. (laughs) Um, The story of the great convent case persisted for decades after it was over, though, as the juicier details were recounted over and over and sometimes bent and dramatized a bit. Even into the early 1890s, there were still penny press versions of this trial being printed, and the covers would feature things like two nuns whipping a partially undressed third nun. Obviously, there was a significant degree of bias against the convent and the Catholic Church from the outset in this case. Although the Solicitor General urged the jury to disregard such personal bias, it's almost impossible to imagine that there was none. Yeah, it's not like, I mean, I'm sure they all intended well, but I'm there. I'm also sure that in the backs of their minds, many of them were like, hmm. Uh, there was also a point made by Mrs. Starr at one point that, of course, Ms. Sarin wanted to make this a legal matter and try it before a Protestant jury that would have anti-Catholic bias rather than go through the church's channels of review, which she felt would obviously find in favor of her mother superior. Um, It is also difficult to truly separate the bias that we've been talking about from many of the accounts of the trial that we have. So while the court reporter's account is theoretically unbiased and the barristers in the case all appeared, at least on the surface, 
to strive to act outside of any such cultural or religious bias. They, too, probably were motivated on some level by it, or in the case of the plaintiff's representation, to be carefully playing on the jury's inherent bias, even while saying, do not be biased. Uh, Moreover, one of the reasons that this case was published so frequently in England following its conclusion was this desire to warn young women away from a life in the clergy. So if Saren was able to return to her life's calling in another convent after this case was finally settled, there are no records of that that we can find. Yeah, I didn't turn any up. Um, and, she, you know, it kind of, she kind of vanishes from the public record after that. It's entirely possible she went and lived with family from that point on, and that was the remainder of her life, because it doesn't seem like she was really going to be able to, like, suddenly take on a career. Right, or be married. Yeah, I mean, this was what she wanted forever. And it one of the things that comes up in the trial is that the greatest heartbreak, and to her, one of the most painful things about being expelled is that they took her ring from her, which is, you know, like the the symbol of her being married to the church and a, a, a bride of Christ. And that that was like the biggest heartache that she endured amongst all of these other things was that they were saying, no, that thing that you said you are, you're not. Yeah. Uh, which was incredibly painful for her. One of the things that I think would have been really difficult at the time, even for people who were trying to really put their own biases aside, like, there weren't that many other situations where a group of people would be living by themselves together, by themselves is not, like, isolated from the rest of the society, in a group for their whole lives, like, There wasn't a lot of comparison to another similar situation where you might also see instances of abuses and bullying, so it probably appeared to people as though this was unique to Catholicism or unique to convents, when really there just weren't exactly comparable situations. Yeah, I mean, I I wish I could take those people forward in time and show them, like, any internet interest group and watch how it implodes and similar. Clearly not the same level of stuff, but it certainly happens. I am, I was, I keep being reminded throughout this of just being bullied by classmates in middle school. Like, it felt like that level of pettiness and... Uh, oh, yeah, there's a mean girls element to it. Yeah. And really, when you think it all started because she wouldn't tell this woman what she had confessed to her priest, it gets very, you realize how petty the seed is that leads to so much pain. Yeah. And also, I mean, for the Mother Superior, it wasn't like, I'm sure she wasn't like, yay, this will drag out for years in letters in court. But she couldn't get over that, like, anger at having not been told this thing. Yeah. And probably she didn't even recognize that was the catalyst anymore. Um, Don't be like that, people. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, is our life lesson. Be kind to one another. That's easy to say, I know. Uh, I have such much more pleasant and delightful and colorful listener mail. Oh, good. Um, This comes from our listener, Colleen, who writes, Dear Holly and Tracy, thank you so much for the wonderful show. I work for a publisher that produces materials for K-12 classrooms, and I am currently working on a series of primary source libraries for middle and high school students. I needed one more document for World War I, and it was the episode A Brief History of Donuts that gave me the idea to use a photograph of a donut lassie. It's one story that the kids won't miss in history class. Enclosed are a couple of sticker packs I developed for work. I hope you will get a kick out of them. Sorry, not sorry for all the terrible 
puns. Thank you again for all that you do. You're a constant source of inspiration and education, Colleen. Colleen, this is so sweet. And now I can tell Tracy, before we started recording, I was looking at these stickers, which are adorable. And I started cackling to myself like I had lost my wits. And it's because one of them... I don't normally love puns, but these are very clever. And the one that I love, it's sort of like an encouragement sticker. And it's got a picture of Henry VIII wearing some groovy 80s-style slat sunglasses. Um, And it says, great, but the great is spelled G-R-V-I-I-I. And that just tickled me to pieces. That's great. (laughs) Um, There are also great ones with fierce Genghis Khan and uh, too legit Elizabeth I, among others. They're fabulous, and I love them. So thank you so much, Colleen. You can write to us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can find us everywhere on social media as Missed in History. Mistinhistory.com is also the website URL if you want to come and visit and find all of the episodes that have ever existed. And if you would like to subscribe, that sounds like a grand plan to us. You can do that on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 